Wow. After only two weeks, I can't believe the difference. Check out the rest of this review from Tammy about our newest supplement at Heart and Soil, Mood, Memory, and Brain. I have some severe long-term memory and focus issues, as well as long-term side effects from a lot of radiation treatments. I've also lost eight people this year, so in short, I've been struggling. Within two weeks of taking Mood, Memory, and Brain from Heart and Soil, I'm crushing it again at work, and I feel that I've come out of my mood slump. I'm feeling myself like myself again, thanks to this supplement. Thank you. And then check this one out from Christina. I have battled with acute anxiety since childhood. This supplement has helped reset my mental health and make an overall positive effect in my personality on a daily basis. Thank you. I, I love what we do at Heart and Soil. I'm so proud of this company. You can find us at heartandsoil.co, that's .co. And we make, in my opinion, in my strong belief, the finest grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, desiccated, that is freeze-dried organ supplements on the planet. We have a variety of supplements, but today I highlighted Moo Memory and Brain, which is our newest one, which contains desiccated brain, which has amazing nutrients, phosphatidylserine, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, all kinds of good stuff like that, that have real good clinical data on them that I've talked about in the past, as well as bone marrow and liver. This is a powerhouse for your brain. So check out Moon Memory and Brain at heartandsoil.co today. Our mission, my mission in general, is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. I believe that all of you have a birthright to radical health. We have only to remember where we have come from as humans, how to eat, how to live, and it is ours to reclaim. So reclaim that birthright to radical health. My guest on this week's podcast is Robert Breedlove. He is an incredible human, really brilliant, kind, and thinks a lot about finance. And as I say in this podcast, this is really the second in a series on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. This is something that none of us can ignore. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are not something that our ancestors ever had to think about. But I think that in today's world with the Federal Reserve Bank continuing to print money and inflation going sky high, this is something we all have to think about is protecting our assets. One thing our ancestors did think about was protecting their tribe and protecting their assets. And I think that and I think that protecting our assets is critical, understanding that there is a real ancestral perspective to this as we are creating um, money today in 2021 that is not hard, that is quite inflationary, that more and more money is being printed. And that is something that people have struggled with since the dawn of money in societies. So in order for you to protect yourself and your family, I think these are really important concepts to understand. Robert does a great job of talking about this. And so I'm super grateful for him for coming on the podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. That is how we can spread the message perhaps in the best way. Um, you can go there and many people will see that this podcast has more reviews. It helps more people find the message of the remembering, whether it's cryptocurrencies, diet, sunlight, community, psychedelics, like I talked about previously with Dan Angle, whatever it is we're talking about. I think this is an important message, something I believe in deeply. So Hope you guys can help more people find this by leaving me a review at Apple Podcasts. For those of you who do, I want to say thank you, and I'll give away one free copy of my book every month that is signed. So I also want to emphasize this podcast is free, and the sponsors make that possible. So I am grateful to the sponsors, and I select only sponsors that are in line with this message, whose products I believe in and use frequently. With that in mind, I hope you will check out these sponsors that I really appreciate. First and foremost, got to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures. I love these guys. Sixth generation family farm in Bluffton, Georgia, doing regenerative agriculture. 
this is the type of stuff we use for hardened soil. We'd love to develop a domestic supply chain, but um, we currently source from New Zealand, but white oak is in the US. So you can get a domestic, you can support a domestic regenerative agriculture supply chain for meat and organs for your family. Will and Jenny Harris are beautiful, amazing people, and they do it right there. I've often thought that if there were a zombie apocalypse, I would head to Bluffton, Georgia, and I think there would be a seat at the table there for me and uh, for you too. So it's an amazing place. When I visited, the cows are healthy, the grass is green, there are birds, there are bugs, there are worms. This is the way that animals regenerate the soil, regenerate ecosystems. It is something that I feel incredibly proud to support and to be a part of. You can find them at whiteoakpastures.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD there for 10% off your first order. They do grass-fed and grass-finished beef, lamb. They might have goats. They do all kinds of other birds. They have corn and soy-free chicken at our request. They have great eggs. They have all kinds of amazing stuff there. Check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. CARNIVOREMD gets you 10% off your first order. I was recently back in Austin, and I really one of the things I miss in Austin the most is my cold plunge. And I really love this cold plunge from thecoldplunge.com. They've done a great job with this. It, it's revolutionary, really. It uses powerful cooling and filtration with sanitation to give you cold, clean water whenever you want it. It's far superior to an ice bath or a chest freezer. It's safe for indoor or outdoor use. Installation is easy. It's plug and plunge. You fill it with a hose, you turn it on, set the temperature down to 39 degrees, and you are all set. And it's really affordable. There's a lot of cold plunges on the market that are tens of thousands of dollars. This one is quite affordable. And I think it is a fantastic investment if you want to do contrast therapy, which is something that I love. So I love having this in my backyard in Austin. Grateful. I use it frequently when I'm there. So you can go to thecoldplunge.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for $111 off. Not $112, $111. Thecoldplunge.com. CARNIVOREMD gets you $111 off. You can thank me after you get done shivering. You will like it. Uh, I also love the folks over at Juve, J-O-O-V-V. This podcast is brought to you by those guys as well. I'm passionate about finding ways to live the most healthy and radical life possible. That's how I came across Juve originally. You've heard me talk about them before. They are J-O-O-V-V. I use my Juve every day when I'm in Austin. I've got it with me. I've seen the burn benefits firsthand with sleep optimization, improvements in skin, all this kind of stuff. It really helps kind of me wind down at the end of my day. If you're familiar with light therapy, you know Juve is far and away the leading brand. They've pioneered the technology, becoming the first to isolate red and near-infrared light. They make it accessible and affordable for in-home use. And they have a new line of devices that take it to the next level. They're sleeker and lighter with the same power you have come to expect. They have some really cool new features like recovery plus mode that uses pulsed infrared light technology to give your cells an extra healing boost that optimizes the recovery process. It's pretty cool. And they have ambient mode, which I particularly like, it uses lower intensity light at night to support sleep and circadian rhythms. Helps counteract all that artificial blue light that keeps you up at night. It's, it's almost, I don't know what it is about these lights. Like when you use them, you, you really feel there's something going on with this red light. It's pretty wild. Try it. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Like if you use this at night, it really kind of helps your body turn off in a special way. So if you're looking for a new Juve, go to joovv.com front slash Paul. Use the code Paul. <laughs> You get an exclusive discount on Juve's Generation 3.0 devices. Exclusions apply. This is a limited time only. J-O-O-V-V, juve.com, front slash Paul. Use the code Paul for discount on their Generation 3 devices. And last but not least, my buddy Monsol is uh, an amazing human in Austin, Texas, and he has a company called Sacred Hunting. And the website is sacredhunting.com, front slash Paul. 
it's really, I think, the best way for men or women. Um, actually, I think this is just um, for men these days. So I'm sorry, ladies, maybe he'll do a women's retreat, but I think this is just for men. It's a hunting retreat. So you learn the basics of how to stalk, track, kill, and field dress wild game animals with a ritual um, and Native American component that make it a real rite of passage. Um, I did a hunt with Monsal uh, and a bunch of my friends in January of 2020. It was amazing. Kyle Kingsbury was there. I killed an animal with my bow. Other people got animals with their rifles. We all were able to cook and eat organs over the fire. Um, you know, my friend Liver King participated in sacred hunting experience with his son at my recommendation. Um, there's, it's amazing. Like all my friends who have gone with Monsal have had um, amazing experiences. So check it out. You can go to sacredhunting.com from slash Paul. Fundamental health listeners will save $250 off their trip by mentioning my name. There are two dates specifically set up for followers of this podcast, February 21 to 23rd, 2022, and May 22nd, excuse me, May 20th to May 22nd, 2022. There are five spots available on each hunt, so visit sacredhunting.com front slash Paul fill out the two-minute application and set up an exploratory call with Monsal. This is a great way to get into hunting. And as I said, it is much more than a hunting experience. It is a wraparound, really uh, rite of passage with many critical and sacred elements. So go to sacredhunting.com front slash Paul. And again, you can save $250 off there. Um, by mentioning my name. All right, guys, on to the podcast with Robert Breedlove. I enjoyed this one. I hope you do as well. Robert Breedlove, thank you for coming on the podcast, my friend. It's good to have you here. Glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there is so much happening in the world right now with cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and I generally favor a low-tech, quote-unquote, approach to my life. I like to get in lakes and rivers. I like to be in the sun. I like to eat animals. I, I, I have this love-hate relationship with my phone, but I cannot um, ignore what is happening in the crypto space. Um, and I talk about the remembering, this idea of understanding where humans have come from. And I just think there is, this, there is this, this thing that I want my audience to be aware of, which are cryptocurrencies. And so I'm excited to talk to you about Bitcoin and how it fits in the space and, and how even if we're interested in remembering where humans have come from and living ancestral lives, we probably should not ignore these trends. So let's just start with a little bit about your background so people know who you are um, in case they didn't listen to the intro, and then we'll jump off into the wild realm of Bitcoin. Sounds good. Um, yeah, I guess I'll give you the brief background. Um, my name is Robert Breedlove, uh, currently the host of the What is Money show. So we talk about a lot of these topics, uh, specifically money, history, philosophy, economics, all these things very in-depth for hundreds of hours. So you're in, into the long form content, uh, we're definitely the spot for you. My educational background is of a master's degree in accounting and finance. Uh, I was a CPA for a number of years. I became pretty much a career CFO after that, mostly focused in tech, um, early to mid-stage companies. And I've been kind of just a lifelong nerd. I've always been very much a reader. And uh, I had learned about the central banking rabbit hole back in around 2005 after reading a book called the creature from jekyll island uh, by g edward griffin and uh basically had come to the conclusion that it was the problem of pretty much everything <laughs> uh 
state and economy wise in the world, but there was no viable solution for it at the time. And then fast forward to 2014, I was actually in Costa Rica. I was on vacation with my girlfriend and another couple. And I'm having an argument with uh, the boyfriend of the, the other couple. He's a banker, private wealth guy. And he's saying crypto assets or cryptocurrencies had 0% chance of ever succeeding. Again, this is 2014. So kind of early days. And my position was the opposite was that that absolutely 100% would succeed in some form. Um, in fact, they already were succeeding. So However, I kicked myself because at the time I had not done the deep dive necessary to understand that Bitcoin is a fundamentally different animal um, for reasons we can get into later. But um, so then fast forward 2016, I had discovered the concept of smart contracts from the work of Nick Zabo, uh, which is another thing that crypto assets enable. And that was my light bulb moment was essentially the realization that the entire finance industry is a, is a smart contract built with people instead of software. So at that time, I thought the software or this technology was going to be a really big deal. I started making uh, allocations, significant allocations into the space, mostly just buying the top weighted market cap uh, crypto assets. And then where my money went, my mind followed. And I've been falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole ever since. Um, I operated a hedge fund in the space for a number of years before uh, in 2020, deciding to pivot myself full-time to education. Uh, the writing and talking I've been doing surrounding Bitcoin and history of money was becoming very popular. So I decided to uh, focus my energies there. I love it. And I, for one, am very grateful for your focus on education. I've listened to, I believe, every single podcast you've done with Michael Saylor on the what is money, like sort of Uber history. Someone recommended it to me when I was talking on my social media and saying, I'm getting interested in Bitcoin. I have a good friend in Costa Rica who orange pilled me, which is sort of the, the colloquial term for when someone talks to you about Bitcoin and the light bulb goes on. Many uh, of the people listening to this may have relatives or friends who've had light bulb moments in terms of dietary modifications. But I had you know this light bulb moment as my friend in Costa Rica was telling me this. And somebody said, hey, you should listen to Robert Breedlove's series with uh, Michael Saylor. And so that's an excellent one on your What Is Money podcast I would recommend to people. It was just so cool to hear that. So thank you for doing your educational work. You mentioned in that central banks, I thought that would be a good place to start because people listening to this will know that the US federal treasury printed over a trillion dollars, I believe, uh, during the COVID uh, pandemic. And there's now news that Joe Biden's plan for the climate may want to print another 1.7 trillion more. How can we do this? What is a central bank and why should we be worried about this? And is it really a creature from Jekyll Island? I think it is. <laughs> Well, it's definitely a creature from Jekyll Island, which is an island off the southern coast of Georgia. That's where the Federal Reserve was conceived um, ideologically, and then it was it was born not long after that. Um, a central bank, you know, originated as the custodian of money, which is gold. Gold is money, and we won't go into this history. You just kind of take it for granted that a lot a lot of us understand that gold is valuable. Gold was money. Um, very few of us understand how we got from gold to paper, though. So the central bank, the short story is that gold best satisfied the properties of money, but it lacked one thing that's really important, and it lacks portability, right? Gold is heavy, it's expensive uh, to secure and move. So if you're going to build a, a globalized economy with a lot of transactions happening all the time, 
gold is far from ideal, right? It's just not fast enough. So the economics related to gold, particularly in particular, it's economies of scale lead us to centralize the custody of gold because there's humans figuring things out as we do. Hey, it doesn't move fast enough. What can we do? Let's put all the gold in one place. We'll issue paper certificates that are redeemable for gold. Then we can trade these paper certificates as if they were as good as gold because they are, right? Each one is effectively a call option or a contract to gold. You just take the paper back to the custodian, you redeem it for gold, all, all is good. So currency, banknotes, these paper slips are also called warehouse receipts where the gold's kept in a warehouse, you get a receipt to the warehouse. This was an augmentation to the portability shortcomings of gold, right? This is a technological innovation, frankly. The problem this introduces is that now all of the most valuable asset in the world is in one place behind one lock and key. And now you have to trust whoever's holding that lock and key and whoever's issuing the paper that's redeemable for the gold. They have a huge financial incentive to just create a little bit more, right? If I've got 10 tons on reserve, maybe I'll just create 12 tons worth of paper and keep a little bit of the difference for myself. And so it introduced the requirement to trust the custodian and trust the issuer of the currency. And, you know, another definition of money is money is the trust minimized asset. It's the asset that we can hold. Like if I hold physical gold, I am immune to the opinions of others. No one can increase artificially increase the supply of gold. No one can counterfeit it. Uh, it's hard to steal if it, if it's custodied properly, all these things. So when we, when we attempted to scale gold via the central bank, we actually reintroduced the need to trust other humans, which is to say we reintroduced political attack vectors. And of course, uh, the state, which is the monopoly on violence, is pretty privy to this. They see that, hey, if you know, we need to generate additional revenues for ourselves, it's very easy to commandeer this money warehousing function and make it part of, uh, of the state. And indeed, this is what every state has done throughout history. Not necessarily always via the central bank. A lot of it was just by uh, centralizing the issuance of coinage or whatever else. But the monopoly on violence, which is the state, has always strived to control and monopolize money is the short story. So we have this central bank established in the US in 1913, the Federal Reserve, uh, still operating on a gold standard for some time. But the there's a lot of manipulations of the market. We'll fast forward to 1970, where eventually we just had created so much paper after World War One, World War Two. Uh, we had reestablished the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, uh, where we basically the dollar would be pegged to gold. Every other currency would be pegged to the dollar. And so what this gave the U.S. is this exorbitant privilege that we could just print dollars send them into the world and the world would send us goods and services. So we got this weird asymmetric call option on global capital through our monetary system. Well, enough countries called our bluff where they were redeeming dollars for gold on the standard that eventually in 1971, Nixon said no more of that and closed the gold window. And that had that put us onto this now 50 year old global experiment we call fiat currency. Um, and it's very, you know, there's a lot of complexity here. I'm glossing over a lot of history, but most essentially, it's a violated contract, right? That contract, that, that bank note was a contract for gold. 
You know, it was re- it, you can look at old U.S. banknotes as redeemable for a certain quantity of gold. Governments just forcibly rescinded that contract. They broke the contract, so it's 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 illegal. It's it's currency counterfeiting at scale is what we have today. Um, and one phrase that that captures it that's become somewhat popular recently is that inflation is legalized counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminalized inflation. They're the same thing. Um, yet we have been, it's been normalized and conditioned into our mind that we need the state to control money, um, for whatever reason. So, and so I think that, you know, growing up, you'd get a dollar or $5 from your dad for your allowance. And you were like, Oh, this piece of paper is a dollar. It's valuable. And then as I started to go down, I never even thought about this, Robert, until I started thinking about Bitcoin. I never thought about what is money? Why is this piece of paper valuable? Does this piece of paper become less valuable? What happens? I give it to a bank. They put a digital number in my account and I have money, right? Okay, great. I'm just keeping money in my bank. But like, it's just a light bulb moment when you realize, like you're saying, inflation from the printing of more money and inflation is a super hot topic word right now. Everyone's starting to say it. The mainstream Mm -hmm. media could not contain it. The mainstream media was Mm -hmm. trying desperately to say there's no inflation, there's no inflation. And now everyone's like, there's a shitload of inflation happening yeah. and more yeah. and more coming. Like, yeah. and so I didn't, you know, a year ago, I would not have really appreciated the way that when the federal reserve prints money, the money that I have in the bank, those digital numbers are worth less. Yes. And so I would think like, Oh, I have $5. Wait, that $5 is, it's just, it's less, it's less valuable. So, mm-hmm. so what's happening, you know, like just so people understand, talk a little bit about inflation, what causes it, and, and what we're dealing with right now, maybe you can throw out some numbers and, and we can get a sense of like how bad inflation is at this moment. It's hard to quantify, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, really, maybe the most simple one. It's like if you just imagine a world where there's 100 rookie, Babe Ruth rookie baseball cards, right? They would have a fixed value. There'd be a certain amount of demand for those 100 cards say each one's worth a thousand dollars, I don't know, million dollars, whatever they are. Every new Babe Ruth rookie baseball card that was discovered, right? You discovered the 101st, the second, the third, the fourth, it would be dilutive in theory to that whole basket, right? So whoever, if I was holding one of 100 and some guy discovered, you know, 101, two, three, four, five, that million dollar baseball card would then be diluted by the existence of other baseball cards. So that's what it is, is dilution, right? The more sophisticated example that would resonate with anyone that's dealt with a private company is just a cap table, right? The actual ledger of equity holdings of a business, who owns what percentage of the business. You would never authorize a specific shareholder class, the ability to issue new shares in that company and dilute other share classes without the approval of those other share. Like it would make no sense because then that share class would just issue new shares until they diluted everyone else to zero and they own the whole company, right? Clearly that makes zero fucking sense. No one would ever sign up to own a company like that. Yet that is precisely how central banking works, right? You could think of the dollar as a share certificate to global capital, if you will, right? We're all using a fixed amount of dollars, right? At any one point, you have a fixed amount of dollars in your bank account. It's not increasing or decreasing, right? Maybe you're getting 0.5% on your savings or whatever garbage interest rate it is right now. 
let's just say it's stable, but the money supply, there's this asymmetric shareholder class, which are the shareholders of central banks that are increasing their stock certificates of this global capital we call money. So they're diluting everyone else. It's just theft. It is mechanically, there's nothing else to it. And that's why I'm astonished still to this day that, you know, I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this, even really smart people in finance worth tens of millions of dollars still have this normal. Some of them believe like inflation is normal and healthy. Like they've drank the Kool-Aid for so many decades and it's, it's just deceptive enough because you're, as the dollar's value declines, everything priced in dollars is going up, right? Your house is becoming more expensive. Your equities portfolio is looking better. Everything that's of a more fixed supply is actually increasing in this in nominal dollar terms, but it's not because the value, it's not like demand is increasing. It's the unit of economic perception. You're thinking through the dollar that's being deprecated, right? You're being diluted and robbed. So that it astonishes me that it's just that simple of an illusion, but it has worked so well and continues to work today and people still don't get it. Um, in terms of like examples of, of numbers, you know, and here's the thing about inflation too. You can't put a number to it. We have CPI, which is a very bogus metric for a number of reasons. I mean, you just say they exclude food and energy. Like so consumer price index. Yeah, the consumer price index. If you can imagine any world where you can live without food or energy, then maybe you can rely on the CPI. But if you believe in thermodynamics, you know that's completely fucking impossible. So uh, further, the metric itself to quantify inflation is actually impossible because it's, it's a coefficient that's unique to your specific aims. Like what are you trying to buy? What are your inputs and outputs and what are you trying to buy? If you're trying to buy you know, say there gives the, the, the case of the house in the Hamptons. If your goal is to buy a house in the Hamptons, well, inflation is 50%, right? Houses in the Hamptons are up 50% in the past year. If your goal is to live in your parents' basement, eat Doritos and watch Netflix, then inflation's 2%, right? It, it's, it's dependent on what you are trying to buy. So the fact that the government even tries to put a number to it and say, this is inflation is an outright lie. It's a total lie. Um, and another, you know, a point to think about with this, a useful analogy is that you can't even own fiat currency. You can't own it. You cannot own dollars. And this sounds weird. You're like, what do you mean? I've got dollars. They're under my mattress. They're in my bank account. They're in my hand, whatever. What do you mean? I can't own them. They're mine. I'm holding them. They're right here. You, no matter where you put those dollars, you are never protected from the dilution of the central bank, right? You put cash under your mattress, you think you're saving it for a rainy day, they will just print money and dilute the value of those dollars ultimately into worthlessness, which has indeed been the final destination for every fiat currency across history as they go to zero. That's scary. The average life of a fiat currency is 27 years. I think there's been tens of thousands of them, maybe not tens, thousands of them historically, they all go to zero. Um, so you're, you're effectively renting fiat currency and you're paying rent every second of every day via inflation. And worse, that, worse than that, like inflation's bad. They can also just outright deauthorize money too. So in India, for instance, I think it was about a decade ago, they just turned off the 500 rupee banknote overnight. So one day you've got you know tons of rupees in your briefcase or whatever, and they just literally turned it off overnight. I'm like, no, we don't accept that anymore. 
And so its market value just collapses. You could do that with any, any form of fiat currency. So you're just, we're just renting this money effectively. We don't have real exclusive property rights in fiat currency, whereas something like Bitcoin or gold, like you're holding something that no one can counterfeit, corrupt, change. Um, so it's just fundamentally different. It's a fundamental, fundamentally different type of ownership. So I so appreciate you telling the history, you know, 2006, 2014, enter Bitcoin when? 2011? 2010? 2009. Nine? Yeah, started operating in 2010. Satoshi Nakamura. Or I'm sorry, 2008 was the white paper, 2009 started operating. Yeah. yeah. Satoshi's white paper. What is Bitcoin? How does it potentially solve this? I mean, the friend of mine in, in, in Costa Rica that Orange pilled me said he thought that Bitcoin was the most significant thing that was going to happen in his lifetime. And, and I think that there's never been anything like Bitcoin. I mean, the whole life that my parents lived, it was all fiat. I mean, they were born before the Nixon's, you know, taking us off the gold standard. But the Bitcoin really has the potential to change things. But why? Tell us, like, what is Bitcoin? How does it change this? What's the big deal with this? Well, this is what we spend hundreds of hours talking about on the show, so it's hard to get it into a nutshell, but I'll, if you can permit me um, to just mention the properties of money, it's like why gold became money. Right. It was the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce asset in history, full stop. So human beings through voluntary economic action, economic decision-making over time, they kind of zero in on gold, like a consensus is established in gold as money because it best satisfies these properties that human beings need in money. We desire these things in money. Gold was just the best tool for the job, ultimately. The problem, as we mentioned earlier, gold lacked portability. So to scale gold, we needed the central bank. Central bank became this institution of ultimate corruption and limitless theft, frankly, that the state, that all states use, right? All states. So that's the problem. Gold's good, good tool for the job, doesn't scale, right? We need to scale, we need to increase transactions per second as a global society, otherwise we all can't do business together. We can't have a global division of labor. Uh, our wealth creation and productivity is restricted and we're, we're, our hands are tied effectively. So, and this has been the problem with, with kind of civilizational boom and bust as we build up a large economy, and then the state starts to prey on it and corrupts the money and it collapses. And so we had this repeat boom and bust in societies uh, driven by the corruption of money, largely. So in that lens, Bitcoin is incorruptible money. It's the first incorruptible man-made asset that has ever existed. And another way to say that is it's the first fixed supply asset that has ever existed. Even with gold, right? The hardest monetary technology to produce in history. If we could just flip a switch and make everyone go out and start mining gold, we could get a lot more gold above ground a lot more quickly. So even it, even the most resistant asset in the world is not perfect. Yet with Bitcoin, that's not possible. No matter how hard we try to mine it, no matter how hard we try to manipulate it, attack it, corrupt it, bend the rules, it just adheres to this immutable, unchangeable rule set and it, it adheres to a supply cap of 21 million. So as I've argued in some of my writing, I actually consider Bitcoin to be the discovery. Clearly it's an invention, right? Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin, 
But in doing so, he discovered absolute scarcity. We've never had anything like this before. We've never had anything that we knew with essentially 100% certainty. This is the quantity, right? It doesn't change. 21 million forever. Nothing like that has ever existed. And this is very important because, you know, as we outlined earlier, inflation is really bad. Bitcoin is the only money in history with 0% unexpected inflation, right? We know it's a fully diluted cap table. No one can change it. You know, you're to hold a thousand Bitcoin or any amount of Bitcoin is to hold a guaranteed fraction of the total supply to hold 1000 out of a possible 21 million forever, right? So it's the ultimate store of value. All like the, the scarcity property of money is what enables it to be a store of value. And Bitcoin has effectively perfected that, right? It's 21 million, it's fixed. And then the other properties that we mentioned earlier, they're also virtually perfected in a digital money, divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability. Um, I, I talk about that a lot on the show. So if you want a deeper dive on that, you can check it out. But that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's like the first man-made social construct, which money, human rights, nation states, these are all social constructs. It's the first one that man has created that man himself cannot corrupt, which is a really big deal. And then it's virtually perfected all the properties of money that human beings seek in money. So I would agree with your friend. I think it is one of the most, I mean, very high likelihood in my, my opinion that the most tremendous innovation we'll see probably in the next 500 years. Yeah, in our lifetimes and our children's lives. I mean, it, this, I, the more I learn about it, reading your stuff, listening to your stuff, talking to my friend Safedine, who I've done a previous podcast with, this is going to change life as we know it because of the properties it has. Mm. And, and in the podcast that it was Safedine, we'll link to that in the show notes, guys. It's sort of a, maybe an intro podcast to this one. We spent a lot of time talking about money, what it is, the history. The conclusion that I heard from that episode was that the hardest money always wins. Hardest mm-hmm. being the most scarce. The hardest money becomes sound money, becomes the adopted money. And there's nothing scarce about the US dollar. And I didn't know what you said there. The historical piece that all fiat currencies have gone to zero is that's terrifying, Robert. Like yeah. that's terrifying. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing, the first point of resistance, I think, when people think about Bitcoin is whatever, it's just made up. I can't hold it. Like I can hold the US dollar. I think these are all constructs, fake constructs mm-hmm. in their minds, but I want to try and address them. You know, people say like, I can't hold it. It's just this digital thing. Like, how can you tell me that's worth anything? So how do you address that one when people have that concern? Yeah, it goes back to what we're somewhat just touching on and that those properties of money, you can't perfect them actually in a physical commodity, right? Again, gold, it was so, the problem with gold is it was bulky. It's, it's physicality, it's heavy. Um, that limits its portability as money. So if you want a money that can be transacted, gold's not ideal, right? That's why we abstracted gold into currency. So uh, this is a big hang up for people that they need to like touch it and feel it. And like, uh, but I, I would think, and maybe this contributes to the generational rift in perceptions because for millennials, people that are more familiar with digital technology, this makes all the sense in the world. You're like, yeah, of course. What? Of course, we're going to hold the money that's digital that no one can fuck with. Duh. But yet you're like older generations that are more skeptical or unfamiliar with computers, uh, you know, that aren't used to doing, conducting their life through, through digital media and storing their photos and their passwords and doing their banking and 
all these critical life functions that millennials are very comfortable doing online, older generations are not. Therefore, I think they're kind of in general more skeptical about about Bitcoin. Um, it's necessary for money to be dematerialized to be perfected. Uh, another way to think about it is, you know, property, just kind of a list of who owns what, right? You have a deed to your house or a title to your car. These are all registered with a state body. There's a list, right? This car, this VIN number is assigned to you and you own it, right? So if anyone tries to take it, you can, you have recourse to the list and you can enforce some action. So money is just the most important form of property, right? It's the property that can be used to buy any other form of property. It's the most liquid property. So the ideal money would be a list, just a list of who owns what amount of money that no one can corrupt. So an, an incorruptible, unchangeable, unamendable list effectively a global spreadsheet in the sky that we can all use and transact on, but no one can change individually. That's what Bitcoin is. Just a global spreadsheet in the sky that nobody can change. So it's, it needs to be, it has to be digital. If we're going to perfect money, it has to be digital. There's no other way to do it. So I hope that helps. I mean, I, I kind of feel for the older people that just are skeptical of digital tech in general, because I would be, I can imagine I would be too if I grew up like that. I'm never going to be um, able to convince my parents to buy Bitcoin, but that's all right because I'm going to buy it for them. You know? <laughs> but let's talk about the corruptibility because I think that the next two concerns people have are number one, like how do you know, and this gets into cryptography, how do you know nobody can mess with this money? How do you know it's so secure? And then number two, how do you know a government is not just going to come and wipe it out? And I, obviously, you know the answers to these questions, but these are the things that I think that I mm -hmm. thought about originally and you know, my friend was answering them, but how do we know, number one, that nobody can just come and mess with your money through cryptography? Why is it so secure? And then let's get into the really important question that a lot of people have is, what if a government makes it illegal? How, do you, how can you tell me the US government isn't just gonna wipe it off the planet? And obviously they can't, <laughs> but tell us why after we talk about cryptography. Yeah, so I think the first thing to realize with um, storing your values safely in Bitcoin is that, you know, it's around a $1 trillion asset today. So that is the bounty on hacking Bitcoin. If you could hack Bitcoin successfully, you could go and short the thing right now, right? And just annihilate it, short it into oblivion. Um, or you could just steal people's Bitcoin, presumably if you could hack it. So there's like, there's a $1 trillion honeypot out there. And this bounty has been going for 13 years. You know, Bitcoin hasn't been a trillion the whole time, but it's stored multiple billions of dollars up until this point, that entire history has presented an opportunity for anyone that could hack Bitcoin, a huge financial incentive to do so. The biggest. The biggest, the biggest ever. Yeah. Right. There's, yeah. Yet it, yet it hasn't happened. Hasn't happened at all. And, you, you know, again, we hear about hacks and stuff all the time and they're, they're perpetrated for much smaller incentives. Like they'll go and hack Home Depot's credit card database to sell to people in Russia for, I don't know, a couple million bucks, right? So much smaller honeypots have seen uh, large secure networks cracked, but Bitcoin, it's sort of twofold. One side of it is its simplicity. It's really just this very elegant pared down set of computers. It's like 
as far as computer code goes, there's not a lot of lines of code in Bitcoin. It's just very simple, right? It's just, again, creating a new block of transactions every 10 minutes, adhering to a supply cap of 21 million doesn't do a lot. It's kind of this just very plain, uh, almost crystalline code structure that there's just, you know, nothing is hidden. So there's, there's no attack vectors on it, really. There's no fancy bells and whistles. Because every time you add a new feature to software, that's when things break, right? It's like, oh, I added feature ABC. And this is why software goes through so much testing. Because every time you add something, it tends to create some unintended effect in the code base elsewhere. But with Bitcoin, the entire development ethos and community has this bias towards conservatism. Like they're just trying to keep Bitcoin doing what it's been doing flawlessly for 13 years. Uh, it doesn't need to add any other features to be successful. It just needs to continue to survive, frankly. And then the other side of it is that the Bitcoin mining network, which is effectively the ultimate free market. Anyone can enter or exit this game. Anyone that has access to sufficiently cheap energy can go stick a Bitcoin miner on that energy source and start producing Bitcoin. The energy that's allocated into Bitcoin mining actually secures its network from attack. So if you were going to attack Bitcoin, uh, specifically, there's a known attack vector called the 51% attack. You would have to actually raise more than 51% of the aggregate energy going into the network to attack it. And I mean, the numbers right now are just stat Bitcoin already, I think for the past five years has been the most secure computing network in human history because it's incentivizing everyone individually to participate in this game, miners individually to participate in this game and their individual incentives are to play honestly, right? You actually are rewarded more financially by not uh, cheating in the game or trying to be dishonest. If you try to propagate dishonest transactions, then you lose your block reward. So you spend money to mine Bitcoin, you try to do something dishonest, then you lose all the potential reward. So all it's like a global incentive alignment as well that pr protects the integrity of the network. Um, trying to think of a simple, I think the simplest answer is just the initial one though. Like there, go hack it, please. Anyone, anyone can do it. Go do it right now. Anyway, like we're, we're waiting. Um, and it's been 13 years and it's over a trillion dollars. Like people don't understand how large that is. I mean, it's a very, very large asset. Um, and then, uh, sorry, the second question was, what about a U.S. government? The U.S. government just saying, that's illegal. Bitcoin is gone. How, you know? Yeah. So you've seen this in China. China's got a long history of regulating and outlawing Bitcoin. Um, the short answer is that there is no, it's almost like the laws of Bitcoin are superordinate to jurisdictional law. And, you know, this is provable and that there's no opinion or regulation or law that could be passed to change the supply cap of Bitcoin. You can't do that. Because the individuals running, like if I run a node, I'm basically choosing what rules I want in my Bitcoin. And I'll always want a 21 million hard cap because that's in my best interest. That means I can't be inflated. Well, everyone else that's running Bitcoin will choose similarly because no one wants to be inflated. No one wants to be robbed. Surprise, surprise. Um, no law can change that. No law can change what software you choose to run. Um, and so, what governments can do is they can regulate the endpoints. So they can regulate exchanges. Um, they can try and regulate the mining network as uh, bit, uh, 
China has done to Bitcoin pretty significantly. Um, but ultimately, I think because it operates in the individual self-interest of people, that it percolates up into government. You know, there's this old saying that no government can remain unpopular for long. It's like government is an extension of ourselves. So, uh, and especially given their current levels of insolvency and indebtedness, you know, what we're actually seeing in the world is like governments turning to Bitcoin mining as a new revenue source. Um, I was just, I was on a call earlier today with a guy and they're, you know, he was with the president of Kazakhstan all week and they're deploying a lot of Bitcoin mining because Kazakhstan has a ton of resources, uh, just unused or underused energy resources that can be tapped for Bitcoin mining. So what this, in my mind, it ends up becoming a game of actually monetizing excess energy rather than trying to stop it. And any country that does stop it, like China, again, China, they're just creating more incentives for other countries to be uh, accommodative. Because now if China's not doing it, you're just now pushing more market share my way. So you've increased the incentives for me as a country to go out and mine this or regulate it, tax it, be favorable to the businesses built around it, all these things. So I think that's the path that this goes. It is, it is sort of like survival of the fittest, which is such an interesting thing. It's like, a, like I'm probably misusing the terms, but it's almost like a capitalist market in, in a broader sense. I mean, I, I've talked to people and tried to grasp the differences between traditional economics and Austrian economics, but I love this idea of a free market. And in, in a way, Bitcoin mining and the utilization of Bitcoin is the ultimate free market. Like you said, if the US were to follow suit with China and say, all Bitcoin mining is illegal. Well, then all the companies that do that, all the people that do that in the United States would just move to El Salvador or to Mexico mm -hmm. or to Canada or to Bolivia or any country that's favorable to this. And I just picked, yeah. I just, I just picked countries. I don't know that they're necessarily more favorable, but, and then those countries benefit from the, the efforts of those miners. And so mm -hmm. there, I, I think that if every country on the planet suddenly said, we're going to ban Bitcoin mining, then it would probably go underground and we would have the new Zion or something, you know? Like, yeah. I don't think people would ever stop mining it, but um, I just, I, like you said, I, I think that, that, that as humans, all countries on the planet will never ban Bitcoin, that, uh, that countries will realize, wait, that was actually a very bad move to ban Bitcoin mining and to make the transacting of it illegal because that puts them behind in many ways for all the yeah. benefits that this type of technology can draw for its citizens. Of course, China is a whole another can of worms with everything yeah. they're doing and you know yeah but they they want it to be they don't want bitcoin and i've always thought wow bitcoin is a major threat to china it's about as centralized as it gets with their social credit score and the way they want to control people but there's so many other countries in the world that i think that will always welcome this and i just i can't see it ever going away yeah there one, one other thing that is important here is there are freedom of speech issues related to Bitcoin. Because when you say ban Bitcoin, you have to think about what do you what do you mean ban Bitcoin? It's just open source code. You can print all of it on paper, set it on a desk, like that's Bitcoin. It's just you're, you're inserting these machine instructions into a software implementation and it's running basically. So at least in the United States, there is significant, I mean, it's the first amendment, right? It's the freedom of speech. And this was, this was uh, ratified by, I think it was a U.S. circuit court in the PGP case back in the 90s, where they were trying to regulate uh, PGP open source software as munitions. But once they, they did that exact thing, they printed PGP on paper, presented it, said, this is PGP, how is this munitions? And just by virtue of doing that, it was instantly protected under freedom of speech, because it's just code. What is so PGP? you get into this, 
PGP is pretty good privacy software. Okay. And it's a, it's like a, an open source privacy software implementation, but they were trying to uh, criminalize its exportation, something like that, but, but they couldn't because it was open source software. And when you, and someone could say, oh, well, they'll just overturn freedom of speech. Like you get into really weird stuff with that because now you can have like illegal numbers and illegal words. And like, it just doesn't, it's antithetical to everything that's American. It, it seems highly unlikely to me. And I hope there are enough people in the US government and increasingly people in the US government who appreciate mm -hmm. the benefits. I think there are so many benefits to Bitcoin. Um, yeah. Do you think, do you really think that the US dollar will go to zero? Do you think that we're going to see the US dollar collapse like that. That's a scary thought. 100%. I mean, wow. every fiat currency throughout all of history has gone to zero, except the US dollar and the British pound uh, in the modern era. Um, and that is because they're the, the current hegemony, right? There's a US dollar hegemony and it protects the pound. Um, but now that, you know, we've always been forced to kind of use the best of the worst. That's why you see when countries have a currency collapse or crisis, they tend to dollarize. They tend to try to get into dollars because that's, you know, better, better money, frankly, for them. But with Bitcoin's sort of something entirely. So because we always had to use the best of the worst, every country could kind of just keep inflating their currency in lockstep. And so long as they didn't do it too rapidly and there was still enough uh, economic surplus for them to harvest through inflation, that people could just kind of like keep getting by. But now Bitcoin becomes this almost like an irrepressible barometer of inflation in a way. I know there's not a way to quantify inflation. Again, it's a coefficient individual to you and your aims. But Bitcoin is this, again, perfectly fixed supply asset being priced in this infinitely expanding dollar. So I think that really is a significant optical game changer. It's like people are just going to see, okay, I keep... Inflation's getting worse. Prices keep going up. My wages are flat, but prices are going up. Life is harder. Bitcoin keeps going to like 100, 200, 300, $400,000. Like it's just going to wake people up. They're going to see. And, and then also it's changing just by virtue of conversations like this and decentralized media. Like people are waking up. The, the term fiat currency was totally obscure prior to Bitcoin. Only these kind of fringe economists even knew what it meant. Now it's become normalized, right? People already know like, oh, it's fucking fiat currency. So I hold out great hope that kind of the, the increased liquidity of ideas in the digital age and then this like truth barometer that Bitcoin is of, of monetary expansion is just going to cause uh, people to see behind the curtain and I think it actually contribute to the collapse of fiat currencies in the long run. Now, I'm not saying this happens overnight. Let's get, there's, this game's been going for a long time. It's been going for a lot longer than a lot of people thought it could go. Could be another 50 years. Who knows? But, um, but there is safety in Bitcoin. You think it may happen in our lifetime? I have a public projection I put out that I think the U.S. dollar is hyperinflated into worthlessness by 2035. Wow. So 14 years. It's, I mean, those are very valuable sort of lines in the sand. Uh, the same friend in Costa Rica that got me super excited about Bitcoin recently sent me an article, which was quite technical, but looking at the US dollar and looking at, I think it was, 
trying to think of, was it inflation related to GDP? It was some, some of these economic metrics that was very, very concerning. You know, it was like the earning potential and it's like, wow, like we're really, I mean, it gets into like pretty technical stuff in economics and, um, but it, it was, it's a little concerning thinking about where it's going. Um, mm-hmm. Let's spend the end of the podcast and we'll have to do a part two because this is all too fascinating to just put into this one little chapter, but we will bookend it here shortly. How's Bitcoin different from everything else, right? There's a million cryptos now, man. And, and maybe you could just start with a short explanation of a smart contract because we hear that term a lot too. And then we'll talk about how it's different. Yeah, that, that was actually, I think I mentioned in the beginning, that's what really had, had my light bulb go off was this concept of smart contracts. Um, you could think of it as automatically executing contract. Um, the simple analogy that, that Zabo uses is the vending machine, actually. So the vending machine, when you you know punch H38 and you get your Snickers bar, like it's running a set of instructions. It's you know accept quarter, check price, or punch number, check price. If money is sufficient, yes, then release candy bar. It's like a little flowchart, right, written in in code. So there's a there's a commercial relationship uh, being conducted through code, effectively. That's what a vending machine is. But you could take that same principle and when you pull it into the world of software, things get super interesting, right? You can, you could say uh, encode a contract uh, with certain terms that as they're satisfied based on whatever criteria uh, the parties of the contract set, that funds would be released as they're satisfied. Um, you know, maybe it could be something simple like a wager contract, like I bet the S&P 500 will be above 13,000 on December 1, whatever. And then it simply references that data, right? It's yes or no. And then it will release the funds to the, uh, the winning party, something like that. So it allows you to start all of these, again, finance, which is a huge percentage of US GDP. I think it's like 15, 20%. It's just an intermediate function. It's not creating any value, actually. It's just connecting buyers and sellers and borrowers of capital, right? It's just handling all the informational flows that map to actual physical productive reality. The 15 to 20% of GDP, right? Some of the highest paid executives in the world, clearly on Wall Street and in finance, like it's all value destructive, actually. It's sucking value out of the economy that if we could provide those same functions by software, you could crush that cost 10,000 X and all that value would flow back to the owners, producers, or borrowers of capital. So that in a nutshell is, is smart contracts. I'd, I'd recommend reading Nick Zabo's work on that. His last name is S-Z-A-B-O, Zabo. He's been writing about this uh, since like the late 90s. Um, I wrote a piece, as far as the question, what makes Bitcoin different than everything else? I wrote a piece um, last year called The Number Zero in Bitcoin. And it's about a 30 minute essay on that very question, like why Bitcoin is different. Um, And it's a bit of a nuanced answer, but the short and sweet would be, and we touched on this earlier, that Bitcoin's perfected the properties of money. So you can't, it's it's impossible to introduce anything more divisible, more durable, more recognizable, more portable, more scarce. There's like, there's not a lot of design space left. If, so that's, that's my opinion. I mean, I think it's pretty well argued opinion, but it's an opinion, right? There's not a lot of design space left. 
if there was some feature introduced that was decided by the market to be something that money was lacking, that Bitcoin was lacking, uh, Bitcoin is open source software. So although it doesn't change much, again, it's optimizing for conservation and integrity and survivability, it still does retain this ability to absorb new features uh, as needed. So that combination really protects it from disruption from any competitive threat. So that's why I say Bitcoin is, is an animal, a whole different kind of animal. Um, there's a lot of analogies thrown around, right? It's like digital gold, the internet of money. Um, and I think that's, that's a pretty useful way to look at it is that Bitcoin is an, it's an open source protocol for moving economic value just like the entire internet protocol suite, HTTP, TCP, IP, all of these things, it's a stack of open source protocols for moving information. So you could think of Bitcoin as just kind of like the latest layer of the internet in many ways. Um, and everything else, like all these other crypto assets have just done a copy paste of Bitcoin code. And they're trying to use it to either compete with Bitcoin as money or to address other market uh, use cases. So I, I, lo I look at everything else as liquid venture capital. Um, and I consider Bitcoin as something just, you know, the internet of money, digital gold. Yeah, there's a whole series of podcasts about the other crypto assets, but I think it is a whole different beast and they probably all can serve different roles from the limited amount of understanding that I have. I mean, I want to ask you one last question, then we'll direct people to your stuff so they can learn more. What do you think the world looks like in 2035 when the US dollar has collapsed? Like, what does that even look like, man? Well, I hope that, you know, people are pushing back on government already. There've been hundreds of thousands of people protesting worldwide for the past several weeks. We're recording in December, 2021. Um, I hope people just keep pushing back. Uh, we don't, there's not value being added by the existence of a state. It's just not there. Um, and, you know, it sounds radical. People are like, what do you mean? Like, they, come on, I got my driver's license and my past, like all these things that I think I need the state for. Um, turns out we don't actually, that the market can satisfy all of our wants better, faster, cheaper. And I actually think that maybe the great promise of the digital age is that we finally get to throw off the yoke of coercion as a species, right? We've had coercion has been an ever present reality for all of human history, but now something's different with digital tools. It's like all of the value creation is voluntary. Like we, if you don't like something, you just exit to another community or you just take your Bitcoin, you know, put it in your brain and go to another country. Like, the individual has been so radically empowered with optionality and choice that it hopefully lets us create a world that's based more on voluntary exchange. And when you have mutual voluntary exchange, this is how you create value, right? We, you and I, and this is an economic axiom. We only trade because you think what I have is more valuable. And I think the opposite. I think what you have is more valuable that therefore we trade. So when you and I trade mutually, we're creating value. You're psychologically better off. I'm psychologically better off. When you build a whole world on that, the whole world becomes psychologically better off. But if you invert that through things like taxation, regulation, inflation, you're just taking, right? One group is enriching themselves and hurting another group. 
And this, I think, is corrosive to socioeconomic reality. I think we've been building our house on sand throughout all of human history. And I hope that Bitcoin can be like this firm bedrock to build a higher, better civilization. I love that. That's such a good place to pause the conversation for chapter two, which will come soon. But I think that it is interesting. I think since we've been trading things and, you know, needing money, which is kind of a recent invention, you know, I went to Tanzania and visited the Hadza. They don't have money. I mean, they use, they use dollars in Tanzania or whatever, you know, Tanzanian currency is. I'm embarrassed that I don't know. Um, but they use it to do things in society. But, you know, traditionally the Hadza, our ancestors never needed money, but since we've needed money, this has been a very an interesting conundrum for humans. And I think, I think something like Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin will be such a huge piece in this new renaissance. And it's so exciting to see, which is why it's something I love talking about. So thank you for this first chapter, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Where can people find more of your stuff? Dive deeper. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at breedlove22. That's my last name, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Um, and then you can find us on the whatismoneyshow.com. Let me make sure I said that URL right. I'm sorry, whatismoneypodcast.com. Great. And I would highly recommend people check out that series I did with Michael Saylor. It's, it's, it's exhaustive and I don't know if it's exhaustive, but it's comprehensive in many ways. Yeah. It's just such an important question. You know, what is money? How do we navigate as humans? Are there threats to our current way of life right now. And I think that there's stuff bubbling underneath the surface. And I, I love what you're saying. It's like, there's, there's theft going on beneath us and we need to be aware of this and figure out how to navigate properly. And um, the other cool thing that we didn't even talk about in this podcast is that some of the best people I've let in my, met in my life, especially in Costa Rica are quote unquote Bitcoiners. And so mm -hmm. if you guys are interested in this and you find people who are interested in Bitcoin and thinking about these things, if you find other quote unquote Bitcoiners, whatever that means, you will find compatriots. Often these people mm -hmm. are interested in, in nutrition, whatever incarnation that looks like to them, though many of them do love meat. I, don't, I think it's a, an amazing coincidence. Yeah. Um, but you'll find some of the best people and, and there's, there's a growing community of Bitcoiners in Costa Rica and there's just growing communities everywhere that are based around these, these ethics that are a little bit different than the mainstream. Um, so yeah. I love it, man. Yeah. Thank you. We'll yeah, talk a, lot, more soon. Lot, a lot of meat eaters. Uh, turns out Bitcoiners like their money with economic density and their food with nutritional density. So. <laughs> right? It's perfect. Yeah. Imagine that. Thank you, brother. We'll talk more soon. All right, man. Thank you.